This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is with 99.9% network reliability from Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Before we begin, heads up that next week is NPR's Climate Week, where we'll spend seven days focused on innovators working to build a better world for the next generation and the one after that. On Monday's episode of Shortwave, we'll hear how a robot is cleaning up toxic seaweed. And you can also check out more stories of human ambition fighting very human problems at npr.org slash climateweek for a spotlight on solutions. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. This year, I moved to Washington, D.C. I was completely intoxicated by the idea of being in a city, seeing massive buildings and people buzzing around. Because after years of living in a sleepy town in the Pacific Northwest, all I want is life. But as Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado knows, really whether it's a bustling city or the countryside, basically anywhere, there's life. I grew up um, in a large city in Caracas, Venezuela, but I spent my summers uh, in a cattle ranch, which uh, was run by my grandfather. And while we were trying to raise cattle, nature had other ideas. There were all kinds of animals trying to eat our cattle. There were all kinds of insects trying to get us sick. There was all kinds of things going on. But what I remember most distinctly from from those days is um, the immense diversity of uh, life forms, both plants and animals, that uh, would just pop out of nowhere. But it wasn't until only later in his life that he realized how these early experiences shaped his love for biology. Today, Alejandro is a molecular developmental biologist, and he doesn't go anywhere without looking for life forms, even in some pretty unlikely places, like the stagnant water in an abandoned fountain. Literally, puns come. There was all kinds of critters living in there, trash, all kinds of crap. One noteworthy creature in the pond scum? A strain of planaria called Schmittea mediterranea, a type of flatworm. They are about the size of a toenail clipping. Uh, their eyes look like they're cockeyed, so they look almost like a manga cartoon. And um, they locomote with these uh, cilia on their ventral surface that makes them look like they are gliding on ice on a surface of water. And it turns out these little worms are helping biologists like Alejandro solve a huge biological riddle. Regeneration. I'm not the regeneration of personality, not the regeneration of spirituality, but no, just the regeneration of missing body parts. Things that we can quantify, we can measure, uh, and we can objectively say that this damaged tissue that is no longer functional was restored to its full functionality by a process called regeneration, which still remains, you know, mechanistically mysterious. Alejandro spends his time studying a few animals in hopes of understanding regeneration better. A South American snail that has eyes similar to humans but can regrow them. A Mozambique killifish that suspends animation in dry weather and then reanimates around water. And this particular flatworm that Alejandro is especially interested in because... You can cut these animals in any way that you like, and each of the fragments will go on to regenerate a complete animal. That's the equivalent of me cutting a piece of myself and watching that piece regenerate another me. These animals out of a piece of flesh can reorganize every component such that they can produce a head, they can produce eyes, they can produce a digestive system, and all of it end up looking like the original animal without prior experience or practice. It's really amazing. 
So today on the show, how a tiny worm-like organism is changing science now, and why Alejandro envisions a future of human regeneration thanks to animals like this worm and technology like AI. I'm Regina Barber, and you're listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, American Express Business. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with features and benefits like flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business, 24-7 support from a business card specialist trained to help with your business needs, and so much more. The MX Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X Business Card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs. Plus, the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase, so the more a business spends, the more miles earned. And when traveling, the Venture X Business Card grants access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X Business Card. What's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. Okay, so Alejandro, when you're talking about regeneration, I kind of start to think about things like immortality, reverse aging, stuff that I'm skeptical of, right? But scientists have known for hundreds of years that flatworms can regenerate. Yes. So what's so special about the one you found in this pond scum? So we were looking for something that would be amenable to molecular dissection. So more often than not, animals in the wild, um, they manage their genetic information in ways that is quite different from um, the organisms that we usually use in the lab. What do I mean by that? You, know, you and I are diploid, so we have 23 pairs of chromosomes. There are some animals out there that are triploid, tetraploid, pentaploid, hexaploid. So they copy their genome multiple times in their cells. And that adds an extra layer of complexity to dissecting the molecular underpinnings of the process that we wanted to identify an animal that would be deployed like, like you and me, that would have, um, you know, the ability to regenerate easily and rapidly. And we also wanted something that had a relatively small genome size because we imagine that as technology progress, if we were to find an animal with a small genome, we should be able to sequence the genome of these animals. Uh, and so that was one of the main reasons that uh, we, we decided to select these animals, besides the fact that they regenerate like there is no tomorrow. But humans are different, right? We can't regenerate eyes or limbs. So as a biologist, what happens to our human tissue and our cells as we age? Okay, I'll up the ante. We don't know why we die. Forget disease, forget wasting. Imagine that you're perfectly healthy, okay? You, you have all your faculties you may be 100 years old and, you know, your physician tells you, well, you know, you're old, but, you know, you're fine. And the next day you're dead. We don't know why we die. And so even the most fundamental questions, right, we don't have answers to. I mean, I like to know the answer to that. And here's the problem, uh, Regina, as I see it, is that we only get interested in human biology when we're sick. Yeah. But what happens when you try to cure a disease uh, whose origins you just don't know. And why don't you know? Because you don't really know how the normal tissues, before they get sick, actually work. 
And so, you know, genes that are associated with human cancers, okay, they were discovered in diseased tissues. Like, I'll give an example. There's a molecule called P53. People assume that the reason why uh, these tumors arise is because P53 and a few other genes have been mutated. That's not necessarily cause and effect. That's a correlation. Mm. You can go back in evolutionary distance to a simple organism, one that only has one cell called coanoflagellate. And if you sequence its genome and you look at what genes are in that genome, you find these cancer genes. And so what is a single cellular organism doing with a tumor suppressor? So that suggests to us that the ancestral functions of many of these genes probably has nothing to do with disease. Mm. So I think it behooves us to understand the fundamental functions that all of the genes codified in our genomes actually do. And we really don't know. We have so many genes whose functions are completely unknown to us. Then what is your best hypothesis on why it's so challenging for humans and seen by many impossible to regenerate? One hypothesis that we like to believe might might provide us with a little understanding of why this phenomenon is so unevenly distributed across animals may actually reside in those parts of our genome that do not code for genes. This is what people, you know, wrongly refer to as junk DNA, the space of the genome sequence that did not code for any proteins, right? But these particular segments um, have functions that allow genes to be turned on or turned off. They're kind of like switches. And we really don't understand what the circuit board looks like. We know there are switches in there. We know we can delete one of those switches. And then all of a sudden, you lose the function of a gene because it's not being turned on or it's not being turned off. And so one hypothesis uh, that is um, alive in the lab right now is that um, these switches uh, are actually changing through evolution. And uh, depending on what the selected pressure was on a particular organism to grow to adulthood and reach sexual maturity so it can actually uh, reproduce and perpetuate itself, may have required them to lose one part of the switch that allowed them to regenerate. Mm. And so what we're finding is that we have a shared switch, us humans, with killifish. And in killifish, that switch is required for driving regeneration of the tail in the animal, including heart regeneration. We have that switch. Wow. But that switch in us only works during wound healing, but not in regeneration. And so we could, in principle compare those switches to each other, and then see what makes it possible to regenerate in the killerfish, and what is it that humans may have lost or modified that prevents that activity from taking place. Mm. I mean, but that's one switch. Now imagine a, <laughs> imagine a chip, because that's what that circuit board looks like, a chip with like, you know, 300,000 transistors, right? Each transistor being a switch. That's really what our genome looks like, and we just have to go one switch at a time to try to figure this out. So I don't think uh, it's, uh, it's going to happen tomorrow, but I do think that it's going to happen uh, at least in this century. I do think this is the century where a lot of these uh, biological problems are ultimately going to succumb to um, scientific inquiry. So you had just said you think there's going to be these, these, these advances mm-hmm. this century. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, so in the, uh, let's say, 18th and 19th century, where biology became a somewhat respectable science, data was very, very difficult to collect. So biology was awash in theories. 
plenty of them. But now we can collect data like there is no tomorrow. And the reason for that is because technology has turned from linear technologies to exponential technologies. So it used to be that one PhD student in the 70s, his or her PhD thesis would be sequencing one gene, okay? We can sequence a whole genome in a day. And so I believe that while we have some principles in biology we understand, we need to discover a lot of new biology that will lead us to the discovery of new principles of biology that are currently operating, but they're invisible to us. And so I think that this next 10, 15, 20 years are going to see an emergence of that kind of thinking. And that's also going to be aided by, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Right. And, uh, and who knows? Maybe we'll get a quantum computer in the next 10 years, and all of these calculations will be absolutely trivial. I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. Because on top of that, uh, Regina, we also have this new technology, CRISPR-Cas9, that allows us to really modify genomes at will. And so uh, all of those elements combined made me think that, um, that we really are uh, at an inflection point in the history of biology. So 10, 20 years, you think that we're going to get to a point where we can actually analyze this data. All these new discoveries are going to come up. What do you think then is the timeline or the soonest, the tiniest bit of regeneration can happen in a human? We are going to get really good at regenerating tissues, for example. I mean, that's already happening. Uh, I think it's going to take a little longer for us to be able to regenerate like uh, complete um, appendages, for example. But I think if you want to regenerate neurons, for example, if you want to regenerate muscle, for example, if you want to regenerate things like uh, the cells that produce insulin in the pancreas, mm. I think that those things will become a reality. And they are becoming a reality in the next decade or so. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we have a situation, for example, of a, uh, a, a stem cell-based therapy that allows uh, people who are blinded by chemicals on their cornea to remove that cornea and use the eye that was not burned to regrow cells to regrow a cornea. And these individuals recovered their, their vision. What? Yes, this is, this is already past uh, phase three clinical trials. But, you know, regenerating a brain or, or a full heart or a lung, that's going to that's gonna take a, a, a significant amount of work uh, because we still don't understand how these organs are really fashioned how they are regulated uh, in their specific functions and how they have the right numbers and the right types of cells to execute their work. But, uh, but I think in due course, and I would say less than 100 years, we should really have a very clear idea of how these processes may be taking place. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I've learned so much. I, I'm very thankful for the opportunity. Thank you. If you've been enjoying this episode, give us a follow on your podcast app so you get alerted each time we publish a new episode. And if you have any story ideas, send them our way. Our email is shortwave at npr.org. This episode was produced by Rachel Carlson and edited by our managing producer, Rebecca Ramirez. Nil Oza checked the facts, and the audio engineer was Robert Rodriguez. Beth Donovan is our senior director, and Anya Grunman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Regina Barber. Thank you for listening to Shortwave from NPR. So I, I just wish I were younger. That's all, I, that's all I have to say. I wish I were younger so I could see this.
Well, if your work is successful, you know, you can keep on doing this forever. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I guess I could be uh, my own guinea pig, I guess. That's right. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.